So what do you play now? Do you play anything? I play Game Store Owner. <laughs> it's challenging as hell. Is that an RPG? <laughs> it should be. <laughs> it your, should be. What's your weapons proficiency? <laughs> I am I'm dynamite with a spreadsheet. Hey gang, it's Harold. We're blessed here in San Diego with three large game stores and some smaller card stores. The largest game store is Paradise Games in Vista, California. This interview is with the owner and my friend, Rob North. This podcast is composed of three parts. First, a discussion of our Wargamers insurgency plans for 2020 at Gen Con with a request for interested parties. Second, some thoughts on podcast frequency and the production process. And in closing, an interview with the owner of Paradise Games, Rob North. We will discuss his 16 years as an owner, what makes the game store business tick, and challenges to its role in the board game economy. Thanks for listening, and if you get the chance, rate the podcast on iTunes. With only a couple of months before the last Gen Con, myself and a group of Gen Con wargamers created what we called the Gen Con Insurgency. The idea was to rally Gen Con wargamers and play some wargames. We rallied between 50 and 70 wargamers overall and played a lot of great games. Then we asked ourselves, how big could this be? Not only did we ask ourselves, but I met with multiple members of the Gen Con Events Nurturing Group and they expressed great interest in making the board game War Games a part of Gen Con again. Heck, War Games were what built Gen Con originally. So we've been pulling together a cadre of War Gamers to expand the bridgehead at Gen Con in 2020. We've also been in negotiations with Gen Con for dedicated space, and it looks like we're going to get it. Things are going very well, and we expect a much larger event and turnout for 2020. With plenty of time to gather and communicate, we should be able to dramatically increase our numbers. But we need some help. You can help us by connecting us to wargamers that are attending or have attended Gen Con in the past. We need players and we'll need people to run games. If you're interested in participating or in any way contributing, let us know. You can contact me directly or refer to the notes for this podcast on my website, conflictsimulations.com. We also have a group on Facebook called Wargamers Insurgency. Please think through your networks and steer people our way. Let's try to leave a mark this year. I never cease to be amazed at content creators that can create on a schedule, predictably and with quality. Rodney Smith keeps a steady stream of how to play and commentary flowing from Canada, regardless of whether it's snowing there or it is snowing. The player's aid is always bouncing my inbox with interviews, reviews and playthroughs, and No Enemies Here is actually here every Saturday with precision. 
My personal goal is to drop a podcast once or twice a month. Sometimes I fall short of that. The people that are kind enough to listen to my podcast have been very forgiving, generally agreeing with me that your right to complain should be in direct proportion to what it costs in capital, time, etc. I do hear about it, though, through strange channels from time to time that are kind of funny. For example, someone who was doing a review of my game, Campaigns of 1777, introduced me as the designer who sporadically produces a podcast. I don't mind the criticism. Shoot, I even read posts on Consim World from time to time. So that's not what I'm getting at here. I just wanted to take a little airtime for those of you that are interested to explain how I think about and execute podcast production. The playbook for content providers says to produce content predictably and on schedule so your fans can anticipate and schedule around it. This is hard to argue, but hard for me to comply with. My life seems to ebb and flow with other priorities. Family, travel, illness, teaching, games, conventions, all reduce my focus on podcast creation. There's also a seasonality to my production I'm discovering. I spend June through November visiting conventions and playing games with intensity because I prefer to maintain a high bar of sound quality and record face-to-face. This is the best time for me to record the interviews. It's not a great time for me to produce the recordings. I've created a bit of a monster that I must face before publishing my podcast. After recording an interview, I then have to produce that podcast. That means arranging for the use of music, one of my favorite parts. I also have to edit the recordings to make them most interesting, do voiceovers, and manage sound quality and consistency. Because of my own standards, this takes a good bit of time, more than you would expect. I certainly could simplify this and make it easier, but I actually enjoy the process. In the end, I've learned you'll see most of my podcasts in a year from June to January. Sporadic to say the least, but this is a healthy thing as it relates to burnout. This is something else I've observed as a consumer of podcasts and other content. I could make up a stat here, but I won't. I do know that podcast hosting services lament the massive number of podcasts that were started but fail to see new episodes. A good friend participated in a weekly podcast and within six months was burned out and stopped. It seems to happen all the time. I worry about that a little, and I believe the sporadic nature of my releases is my reaction to that concern. Sure, it's not optimal for listeners with expectations, but it keeps me rolling. If some listeners stop listening, I understand. Hopefully the faithful will stay and the content will remain compelling. I'd also ask that we forgive other content providers that succumb to the tyranny of the scheduled production. There's another aspect to my content creating life where I get behind. Prolific production also exists in board game design. I submit the case of Mr. Mark Herman. Mark is prolific in pumping out games at an unprecedented pace. Not just games, but great, innovative games. I seem to be producing at the pace of a game every year or two. Once again, I submit the excuses you've heard and the high bars set in front of me by my design heroes, Mark, Volker Runke, and Chad Jensen. On the other hand, there's also the clock speed set by the great Ananda Gupta who after 10 plus years is working on his second board game. But man, what a first board game that was. Twilight Struggle, of course. 
So in closing, I don't present excuses, just a little explanation and a request that we be nurturing and supportive of those content providers that are unscheduled and sporadic. Their content is often worth much, much more than what we paid for it. Rob North owns Paradise Games, the largest game store in San Diego. He's owned the store for roughly 16 years and continues to provide the largest inventory in Southern California, plenty of table space for gamers, and a knowledgeable and fun sales staff. Rob and I speak often about the economics of the game store system and how it's changed. We also discuss where it needs to go to provide a healthy environment for everyone in the value chain. We will start this interview with a question on how Rob got involved in the retail business and how it's changed for him over the last 16 years. Bought the store in uh, 2003. Uh, back then it was called Game Cove. It was in Carlsbad and uh, bought it from uh, Pete Martin and he had wanted to kind of get out of the game store business and, and get a real job. And I uh, wanted to go back to school to become a psychologist, which he did. And, you know, he's a great psychologist now. Very useful to all of us now. Yes. And uh, so I, he was already closing it down and we, you know, made a agreement on purchasing the rest of the inventory and, and, and such. And, and then soon after that, I moved it, uh, over here to Vista, uh, from where they were before it was kind of way out of the way and hard to find. And, uh, I got a, a good deal on this space with, uh, in and out right here. So that was a, a no brainer to move in here. And we've been here now for uh, 16 years in the shopping center. So in and outs packed. Yes. And, and always a long line in the drive through. Yeah, which, you know, and they have to park right in front of my store as they're sitting there waiting to get hamburgers. <laughs> so, you know, we're hoping they at least look over and and uh, wonder what's going on here. So, and and it actually happens. We get a lot of people who walk in the store and like, well, I drive by here all the time and, and I've always wondered what's going on in here. That's good. So it, it does bring us, does bring us business. It's a good, so much better location than the original store. Oh yeah. Yeah. The original one was way off the beaten path down by the Carlsbad village. So if you didn't know, uh, it was there, you weren't going to find it. So I mean, as you get from the village, you're traveling through residential areas and stuff like that. You're like thinking, am I in the right area at all? But so you've been in this business 16 years, 16 years. Yes. Has it changed dramatically in those 16 years? Oh, yes, very much. And, you know, uh, the the biggest change, I think, in is uh, that board games have become popular again. And I think a lot of it has to do with the quality of the types of games that are out there now. Uh, you know, I know when I played growing up, you know, Monopoly and, and Risk, which are, you know, just exercises and dice rolling, really. And, uh, you know, you can't compare, you know, that, that type of family game to something like Ticket to Ride or, or Settler's Catan or, you know, 
uh, you know, a thousand other games that are so much more fascinating, more fun to play. So, and uh, these grid games, they run the gamut. They run the gamut from, you know, something really quick and easy to play uh, to something with an 80 page rule book. But magic has always been a part of your business. Yeah. Uh, when I first bought the store, um, magic was something that I played a lot of with my, with my son. And so, you know, I wanted to focus on that. Uh, it wasn't a huge part of Pete's business, uh, but it was a good part of it. Um, so we wanted to, you know, really bring, uh, magic and we focused on that the first couple of years. And, uh, you know, I always have, uh, focus more on the casual play of magic versus the pro play of magic. Uh, it's, you know, I'm, I've always been a casual player. I had no aspirations of, of, uh, you know, being a pro magic player and traveling the world doing that. Although I have friends that do that and, uh, you know, they've gone on to, uh, to great things, but that was never my aspiration. So how does that manifest itself in the way that stores set up? How do you, how do, how do you differentiate address, you know, aligning with the new players versus the experienced? The, uh, the, the biggest thing is, is, uh, we do our prizes for our events, uh, focusing on more including people in the prize pool instead of concentrating it at the very end at the very top players. So, uh, we spread the, spread the prizes out. So if you're a pro player and you want either cash or, or, you know, lots of packs or things that you can sell back to the store or to other people to create cash, um, you know, they want places that are going to really focus the prizes at, to the best players at the very top. So, uh, by, you know, prizing down farther, we include more people, get more people excited and we create more poor players for these guys to play later on. So, you know, we're, we're definitely part of the ecosystem of, you know, the creation of magic players, but you know, the vast majority of players, they're like me, they just want to have fun playing a game and they don't have aspirations of, of, uh, you know, traveling the world, playing magic all the time. Now you also have a big inventory of, of used cards. Yeah, that's become a bigger business for us, and uh, it's probably we're almost a year into it now, where we've really kind of uh, changed the focus on, uh, you know, rotating that inventory of doing a better job of, uh, you know, selling those single cards because they take a lot of work, a lot of work. Um, and I went out and hired someone that's his entire focus is to keep that inventory, uh, turning. So buying collections, selling the, the used cards. And we just, we've done a better job of, uh, being, having the cards and things that people want. Uh, you know, here in North County, we're the, we have the best selection of, of used cards. So you know, we do get a lot of the pro players coming here to build their decks because they know they can find the cards. And then we've also 
uh, listed our inventory online also and expanded our market that way. Um, I'm not a, I have no aspirations of, you know, being a big online seller, uh, just because handling shipping and things like that's just a pain in the rear. So, but sending out cards is pretty easy. So what percentage of your business is magic? Um, it's grown, uh, a year ago, it was made up about 15% of our business. And, uh, uh, now it's grown to about 30% of the business. So, um, you know, it's definitely focusing on it has really changed, changed that whole dynamic. Uh, but it still uh, does not sell as, as much as our board games do. You know, that's my biggest category at about 40%. So 40% board games, 30% magic. Now there are two other big card games right in in the business Yu-Gi-Oh and and Pokemon right uh-huh and Yu-Gi-Oh we don't carry um and we're looking at possibly getting back into that uh we we used to run events and we used to be the place to play Yu-Gi-Oh uh but it was such a problem uh we had more theft uh and more problems uh with with those players than uh, than any other game I've ever seen. It just attracted a, a crowd that I just really didn't want at the store. And so we abruptly just cut it off. And we haven't carried it now for probably five years. We have had some demand. Uh, I think we'll work on getting Pokemon up and running, which we're well on the way. Hopefully by the end of the month, we'll now we'll have some you know regular Pokemon events. But uh, I'll work on that one first before uh, I go back to trying Yu-Gi-Oh again. <laughs> That's a curiosity to me. I've I've heard that story before. Really about Yu-Gi-Oh players. I'd like to, I'd like to dig into that. Maybe that's a subject of a future podcast. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely uh, very different. We never, I, I can probably count on one hand with fingers left over the number of things that have been stolen at any magic event. And our magic events are, can be huge. I mean, we can get 70, 80, 100 people here playing magic. But in Yu-Gi-Oh, it was a weekly thing. You know, there's nothing more heartbreaking than some little kid who has, you know, worked his little rear end off to create uh, a collection of stuff and then have it disappear at one of our events. It's pretty bad. We said uh, 30%... Magic, forty mm-hmm. percent board games. What compromises the thirty percent uh, in between? Then you have, uh, you know, uh, supplies. So various gaming supplies, dice, things like that, makes up a large chunk. Role playing games uh, also make up about an equal sized chunk to that. And then there's everything else: puzzles and and uh, what traditional games like chess and and things like that that make up the rest of it. It's interesting. Wait, big puzzlers at my house. Really? So yes, when the family gets together, we're doing a puzzle. So uh, I actually uh, a couple of weeks ago picked up uh, three. Did you? Your inventory. So that's uh, some of that's attributable to me. Yeah, it's not a. It's not. They're not huge seller, but you know, it does. You know, give something for people who aren't necessarily gamers. Right. The walk-ins that you talk about that that come over from In-N-Out Burger, right? <laughs> they're looking for something. And, uh, you know, we could probably do a better job 
especially in our puzzle display, you know, and we really only buy puzzles once a year right before Christmas. And uh, we restock and then let the inventory dwindle down to nothing and then restock again in, in December. So far it's worked for us. I haven't got too many complaints and people seem to like the puzzles we carry because we carry ones that are different from Walmart and, and Target and places like that. So we have different suppliers, different puzzles, different looks. So your board game business, uh-huh. you, we had talked before about it. Most of that comes through the two big wholesalers. Yeah. wholesalers, right? Yeah, ACD and Alliance, yeah. Right. What's it like working with them? What are the, what's the business relationship there? Well, you know, we have, we have pretty good relationships with both, with all of our suppliers, really. Um, the, uh, you know, we, we have one that we consider our major, our primary supplier. Alliance, they have exclusives for a whole bunch of, fan, well, anything Asmodee is, exclusive to Alliance. Uh, so that's how they get, you know, a, a chunk of my business. And then uh, we're direct with Games Workshop. Uh, so we buy all of our stuff direct from them. And then a couple other smaller distributors that we use uh, to kind of fill in holes here and there. So yeah, it's, you know, the we have an, an outstanding relationship with ACD and they've been my primary supplier you know, since I've started and they've done nothing to, to lose that status. So you buy from them and it's, uh, not a consignment relationship. You literally, I literally, what you buy, you I, buy. I buy everything. And right. if I buy badly, it's my own darn fault. <laughs> you you, uh, you pay the price. So, so you buy from them. How do, how do they consider the discount to wholesale on that transaction or, or to retail? Um, well, the, it used to be that there was a, you know, the concept of Keystone, which is, you know, you uh, were able to mark up, you know, 100% from uh, what your discount was. And that would be the MSRP, what the manufacturer said, this game should be $50. And so we'd get it for 25 and that would be Keystone. And uh, that was when the business was, you know, super healthy, when we could maintain those kind of margins. Um, the internet has come along and we'll no longer see that. So that keystone has really been cut into. And what, um, and on, on top of that, as other costs for the manufacturers, uh, they've made up, you know, those costs by charging us more for their products. So our margin is constantly being eroded uh, from the manufacturer side and from the consumer side as the consumers now uh, with the internet have near perfect information on what things cost and what things should, uh, should cost. And they know they can buy anything that we sell online for cheaper. Everybody knows that. So there's, we've had to, you know, increase the value of what we provide to our customers you know so we have the big game room uh we have lots of events and people can come and play together in a, a meeting place uh, for people to come and i have employees that know their stuff and can recommend games and we have good inventory where you can get the game today and take it home tonight and play it without having to wait for a day or two for it to come in the mail those are, you know, the types of things that we 
have had to do to, you know, just, just become better. It's interesting to see what Asthma Day did as they started to aggregate publishers because, you know, I, I, I've heard so many publishers talk about the pain and anguish of, 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 of selling their games at such a deep discount to either the wholesalers or the online retailers. When in fact, it's because they don't control their, their distribution channels, right? And so what Asmodee did was they aggregated a great deal of control of great games. And then they said, here's how we're going to price it. And, and then they stuck to it, which I think worked to your advantage, right? Because, oh, yeah. because you can't find those discounts anymore on the online retailers for their games. Yeah, Asmodee has done a, a fantastic job of, of really you know, curtailing the race to the bottom is really what it is for these online retailers. Uh, you know, some of these guys were making a dollar a game or, and was hurting everybody uh, because when you can get it for 40% off of retail by buying it online from someone, uh, you know, that's, that then becomes such a big difference that, you know, I, I can't blame them for buying it online at all. And Asmodee stepped in and said, you know, we rely on the local game store to show people how to play these games and to nurture, you know, the, this gameplay. So if we don't do something, uh, we're not going to have any of these local game stores left. And so if you want to be an online uh, seller for Asmodee, you have to sign a separate agreement with them. There's you know, specific things you can and cannot do. And also you can't get your stuff for as cheap as I can get it even. So if you're an online seller with them, you have a additional, you know, uh, discount that you give up and on top of minimum prices and minimum advertised pricing. And, uh, you know, and I know that there was a lot of online retailers that were just crying about that. I just, You'd think the world was going to end when they first implemented this. But, uh, you know, I, the smart ones know that, well, great, now there's a floor and I can maintain my margins too. Right. And, you know, now we can spend money in differentiating ourselves online instead of the only just price, you know, the price raise to the bottom. Relying on that 30% discount. Yeah. It's, it's really, it was brilliant. And, and I wish so many small publishers would just do that. I mean, you have to be, you have to be confident that people want your, want your games, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and, you know, you and I both remember the collapse at SPI, yes. which a lot of reasons given. But uh, in my mind, if you do the math, much of that was caused by their desire to print massive print runs and then distribute so much of it through wholesalers mm -hmm. that once the wholesalers throw up on it, you're, you're dead. Yes. It's over. And, um, and Avalon Hill and SPI both got into that, that trap, but, um, it, it, it's, it's curious. And, and I think it's, it was good for Asmodee for sure, but I think it was good for everybody in the chain. It, it, consumers could argue that they, they missed out because they can't buy it at 30% now. Right. Yes. But I think it was good for everybody else in the chain. Certainly all the businesses. But you know, one of the things I, I think, and being a consumer and, you know, and, I've been price sensitive on, on many things. Once I got into retail and, and have a better understanding, uh, it helps 
with all my dealings. I, you know, whether it's a workman or not, I need to make sure that they're making enough money to support their family, to pay their employees. I am very suspect when I meet someone that I don't think they can do that with what I'm paying them. And I've always been right. The, the jobs and stuff just don't get done right. And that's the same thing for, for any uh, retailer. You know, you have to have all these people that are, you know, that are being employed uh, and all the people in the food chain from the people who make it uh, to the people who sell it. Uh, you know, a little part of that game you just bought goes to feed all those people. Uh, and a healthy food chain uh, takes into account with that in the pricing. So, and I think a good chunk of people really understand that. Well, it's interesting. People understand it, but then they see it and they want to buy it cheap, right? Yeah. (laughs) We would be so much better off, especially in this little niche that I love, right? The conflict simulations, war games, where, where we have these tiny companies that are trying to make a living and they're continually being lambasted for their prices and, uh, and the reality is, it's amazing these companies with such small print runs survive at all on these, with, with, the, with the prices. Right? I mean, I'd be all for a 50% increase if we just knew that that company would be there in 10 years. You know, we just, we want them to be around. We need them to be around. Sure. And, there, you know, there's nothing sadder than when your favorite company goes out of business. Right. You know, it's... Oh, we've been through it, right? And we've been through it so many times. And even in you know, the local game stores, uh, you know, we've stood the test of time so far with 16 years in business, but I've seen half a dozen other local game stores come and go just because they, you know, couldn't make it. They couldn't, you know, for whatever reason. Um, but it, and it's still sad to see them go, even if they were competition to me, they're still sad. They're still part of the whole ecosystem of gaming, had a piece of it just die. Uh, another branch died. No, it's absolutely true. And then, you know, it's, then you think about all the people that you feed, right? So if you started the small game publisher, mm-hmm. they can't afford to feed many people. No. Right? I mean, oftentimes the people that support the games, the designer, the developer, uh, even the art, right? The graphics that support it, um, the owner of the company, they're, nobody's making, you know, nobody's making much. Well, you know, you're not going to find them on a, you know, 200-foot yacht cruising around the Mediterranean. <laughs> That's right. You know? <laughs> That's right. Well, the good news is they'll be making games. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it does somewhat become a labor of love, uh, whether you're a game store owner or a, you know, some of the most brilliant people I know are game designers. And, you know, if they were to use that, that brilliance, you know, to be a hedge fund manager, <laughs> right. uh, it would <laughs> ironically, it would be, uh, no doubt, you know, it, they could definitely do that. You know, they definitely have the brains for it, but this is a labor of love. It's fun. Yeah. So do it because it's fun and do it because it's fun. And, you know, eventually you make enough money. You don't, right. you know, it's not, in, some people it's just not necessary to, you can, you can do what you love as opposed to what you need to do. Exactly. So allow them to put food on the table and everyone's taken care of, you know. But it's a great point. It's a great point that we should think about the, the, the value chain behind whatever it is we're buying. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't be a race to the cheapest game. It should be, 
it should be more about what do we need to pay to keep this thing going. You know, and, and playing games, it's, it's an experience. You know, when you're a consumer of games, whether you're playing, you know, Monopoly or, you know, Terrible Swiss Sword, eh, you know, it's, it, it's an experience that you're having. I think that's one of the advantages of games as far as in, uh, as consumer products go is that you're buying an experience, uh, one that you can play over and over again. So I think that's why games have become more and more popular as people, I think, are starting to value experiences over things. And, and games fit right in that, uh, in that niche perfectly, especially since they're, you know, not only are they an experience, but they're an experience you have to share with someone else, uh, you know, across the table talking and interacting with them versus video games or even the board games online. You know, you can get and play them, but it's certainly not the same experience. How has Kickstarter impacted your business over the last 16 years? I think Kickstarter has actually helped our business. Uh, and I, I know some people would disagree with me on that. But, you know, as, as someone who buys most of the games, Kickstarter has kind of become a, uh, a bar that if it doesn't succeed there, it's probably not going to succeed on my shelf either. So Kickstarter, you know, will take some people who might have bought that game for me if it was released. But it also does a proof of concept and makes it a little less risky when I do go and invest in the games if it had a successful Kickstarter. So I, I almost never, ever participate in a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, it just doesn't make uh, smart economic sense to do that, to do the retailer levels. Because uh, my, my money ends up being tied up for six, eight months. You know, and, and a retailer survives of taking their dollar and rotating through that four or five times in that, in that amount of time, you know, that, uh, that money has to have some velocity to it in order to stay in business. It's interesting too, that, that it still is a relatively small part, small number of games that come through those. And, it, you know, and, and one of the things I can see that's annoying is, uh, is when a big manufacturer does Kickstarters. You know, I always thought that should be more the domain of the small guy trying to, to get a game out. And a lot of the big manufacturers now just suck up so much of that Kickstarter money, you know, because there's, there's a limited pool there, too. Uh, we're talking early adopters. Early adopters are not historically a gigantic group of folks. I, I would rather see a small publisher proving his concept there than a big publisher just sucking up money. But I can understand if you can get, you know, uh, 80% of your, your, your game funded with pre-orders, I mean, that's a brilliant place to be in. So I, I don't see that ever. It's also interesting for the customer too, right? Because your risk is lower if it's an established. If you're, yeah, if you're established. Because, I mean, we've all heard horror stories of things that never materialized. I participated in a few of those. Yes. And I participated in, in uh, you know, not necessarily game ones, but in other industries of a cool product that never materialized and I never saw my money. Did my you buy the money. ice chest with the radio in it? No, I should have. <laughs> <laughs> I regret that I missed that. <laughs> hey, so, it had the bottle opener on the outside too. <laughs> I noticed right. new ice chests come with that now. So. Right. I don't need that anymore. It's on the bottom of my flip-flops. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Another Kickstarter. So what about, um, 
how many games do you have in inventory? How do you think about that at the store? Um, you know, as in total number of games that yeah, I have just, in inventory? Yeah. I think at any given time we have 800 or so different titles in stock. I mean, it's a, it's a significant, I have a, a much bigger investment in board games. Than I think most game stores do. And that's really one of the things I've wanted to concentrate on. Um, you know, for the exact reasons I just said earlier, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, games are such an experience. So, and board games are some of the best experiences. And so I really wanted to be, you know, the best inventory in Southern California for board games. And I, we're pretty close to that, I think. Yes. I, I think, uh, the biggest that I can reference, uh, for sure. You were talking about velocity earlier. How how often do you turn in your board game inventory? My you know my goal is to do four turns a year uh, on average across my entire inventory. Uh, you know four to five is kind of where I have you know my investment pegged. But a game really has to be it has to sell at least once every six months in order for me to carry it. You know if if it can't meet that minimum then it's probably time for uh, me to move on from that game. And uh, which is probably, you know, not as, as uh, stringent as some other game store owners would be. Uh, but that's also part of what I want to focus on. So what do you do with a game that's not turning, that's, that's sitting on the shelf? Do you have a point in time where you'll discount it or do something else with it? Yeah, we start discounting after six months usually. We'll go through, we'll uh, uh, pick the games that just aren't moving. And eventually they move, you know, through the discount process till they end up on our 70% off shelf. We are going to start doing a uh, the, uh, fulfillment by Amazon. So if they don't sell at 70% off, I'll get whatever I can out of them and send it off to Amazon and expand the market. And then if they don't sell within a year there, Amazon will just destroy them. Oh, interesting. So... Uh, the final step is what's going to be. I just need to figure out what it, for instance, if it's an Asmodee game, you know, it, now I'm selling it at a, at a super deep discount. I really don't have an agreement to sell online for them, but I still need to move my inventory. Uh, you know, it just, if it hasn't sold within a year, it's probably not gonna, at least not in my store. Maybe Craigslist. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I just don't know how many people are on Craigslist looking for board games. Right. Not many. Does the magic stuff turn faster than board games? Yeah, or much faster. Does it? Yeah, and, and things like uh, uh, collectible card games, you know, they're, they're small purchases, you know, four bucks each. Um, I don't, you know, I have to buy them in boxes of 24 or 36. And, you know, they, they usually stay available for, for quite a while after they're first released. So, you know, it, it becomes a, a kind of a, a guessing game of, you know, not trying to buy too much, but still have enough to meet initial demand and, and the ability to restock later. But, you know, those things turn, you know, like pack of magic, I turn, you know, thousands of them in a month. So, but, uh, there, and again, you know, uh, wizards has reduced their margin to the retailers, uh, so far now that you know if it doesn't turn fast then it doesn't make sense to keep it on your shelf you know it's the lower the margin 
that you make on something, the faster it has to turn in order to make your, you know, your investment and your money back. That's why, uh, you know, comics was such a brutal business for us and why we stopped doing that is, you know, you look at a comic and, you know, when, when I got the concept of, uh, you know, a comics like a head of lettuce, uh, you know, after so long, it's worthless. Might as well just throw it away. Uh, and that's the way that, that comics are after 30 days. You know, the chance of you selling that issue is going to be pretty, that's fallen considerably. Because the people that want it already have it. People point. want it already have it. Yeah. So it goes on your way back list. And man, when I closed my comic store up there, I had tens of thousands of comics. It was insane. And I think I ended up wholesaling all of them off for a pittance, like pennies on the dollar. Very unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. But I also learned a good lesson. Right. right. <laughs> Although it almost took us down. Yeah, I learned yeah. a good lesson. Wow. So how many square feet do you have here in the store? This is 3,800 square feet. And you have, looks like, Half of it, as much as half of it, is gaming space. Yeah, there's uh, slightly over a thousand square feet of retail space. Uh, there's sixteen hundred square feet of uh, game space, and then the rest of it is bathrooms and back office and stuff. So, so how do you think the utilization of that gaming space? Uh, how, how do you think about it? I, you know, there's, there there's all sorts of people that play. Right. And on certain nights you have certain people and I know you do tournaments and do you get a good payback in all sectors? You know, I, I consider our game room is it really is marketing. It's uh, because there's it, it's an expense, the additional square footage and and then cooling the place is, you know, uh, can be backbreaking. But uh it's part of that differentiation that I, I mentioned earlier, having a good game space where people can come and congregate and play. And the vast majority of what we do in the game room is free. We don't charge people for it. Um, so, you know, they meet here and, you know, they, the vast majority of people buy their stuff here too, as you know, if it's a thank you or it's because it's here and they're here. And they see something they like, but you know, it's definitely, it's definitely marketing. If I were just a straight retailer, you know, there would just be come in, buy your games, go home, play them. But, uh, you know, that just one more thing to reason to buy online. If you, if that's all the way you are. How, do you, do you think, uh, that the utilization, the number of people you have in the, in the gaming area reflects your inventory or is there more magic players or, or card players or? Well, you know, it depends on what day, you know, we have probably more magic events right now than we've had in years, but they're all small groups except for Friday night, you know, when, which is kind of a, you know, worldwide day for magic is Friday night magic. Uh, and then the pre-releases, which will get, you know, a couple hundred people over two days. So do you do the midnight sale of the, no, 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 mostly because I don't want to stay up that late. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give that to other stores, but actually wizards, uh, you know, has now allow, uh, just with their last set, the ability to run 
on a Friday afternoon. So we can start our pre-releases, uh, you know, Friday afternoon. And so we, we did that and it was quite a success this last one. So, and it did spread out the, uh, the pre-release players. So our Saturday event wasn't as big, but when we counted up all the players we had over the weekend, it was about the same and just made a better experience for the players. So that's what we want. And you, you mentioned that it's marketing, but do you have expectations for what people will do that use the space? I mean, that, you're, you're the, the, magic, the magic tournaments, people pay a fee. Mm-hmm. And does the most of the fee come back? Uh, fees, uh, you know, the, uh, our magic, you know, the money we make on a magic event is uh, my lowest margin thing I have in the entire store. And we, we make hardly any money at all. It, almost all of it goes back to the players. So, um, you know, although we have to charge because we're giving product out, uh, you know, it's, it's inconsequential. It's inconsequential. But, you know, then they buy sleeves and then they buy sodas and they buy singles and then they trade in the singles they have for singles they want. And, you know, so it, it does create a whole uh, economy, right. you know, within the store. So, so, so my, my point in bringing that up is that for the board gamers, you don't see that directly, right? There's no, there's no, there's not the direct trade, right? There's no fee. Yeah. You don't charge a fee for the table. Some stores do that, right? Some stores do. And, and, and I see that that's going to be a trend going forward as, you know, the margins get cut more and more, you know, the game stores are going to have to look at, you know, how can I recoup my game room costs? You know, I know some stores now that are, you know, you have to be, you know, in a club essentially. So you have to be a member of the club to play in there and it might cost $30 a month, but you get $30 in store credit to spend. But then, you know, at least that way the, the owner is guaranteed that people are buying stuff at their store and, you know, then they can actually put a, a revenue number on that game room. You know, for me, I've avoided doing that. And we haven't had to yet. So I imagine if, if things, you know, got a little more uh, skinny on the margins, we would have to look at doing something like that. But at this point, we don't. There's another store in town that we both know well that uh, has experimented with a host of things, right? Including, including a brewery. Yes. Uh, a... Uh, a beer tasting room, I guess, next door, and 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 then kind of resented when players would come in to play games but not drink beer, and so that ended up in great frustration. And and since then, it's all shifted around. But you know, I, I as a player, and actually as an organizer, right, I do a ton of organizing for events uh, and pulling people together, either small events at a game store or bigger events. And the the hardest part of that organizing is finding space and it's and i don't expect to find space for free Mm -hmm. but i do want if i if i arrange for space i want it to be there so you know i think that the the crew that i play with uh here in san diego would be happy to pay something right in order to have a in order to, to, to know that you had a spot sure and that's you know one of the great frustrations is the or, or um, you know, other stores unlike yours that that, and I think all war gamers struggle with this is that they they have a strong preference for the card games mm-hmm. and players. 
so not just on those critical nights, Friday night, for example, but but also, you know, just in general. And um, and so there's a group that meets at this other store, uh-huh. and and uh, still, you know, always treated as second or third class citizens compared to the uh, to the uh, to the card players. Now the the irony to me is that these are gamers that have collections of a thousand games or more and buy 30 games a year or more. Right. So, so what you want to do, I think is you want to bring them in and coddle them and uh, you know, you have a good chance of selling something, you know, and I look at, you know, tonight is our, our board game night kind of set aside for, you know, priority on tables for, for board gamers. And, uh, but we have board gamers almost every single day of the week that are here. And, uh, you know, we have our game library where people come and just pick a game and sit down and play. We encourage that. Um, but yeah, I, I'd never want to make people feel, or particularly my board gamers feel that way. You know, and we, we have a really good, uh, rewards program and, you know, it gives, our customers great value, but it also gives me great insight. And, uh, you know, I, I can go out here and look at all the guys that are playing here today and, and, and know, and know for a fact that they spend money in my store without a doubt. We haven't talked about miniatures in your inventory. And I, and I know that inventory, that, that miniatures, you and I may think of miniatures as historical miniatures, but fantasy Star Wars, all sorts of other things, are really where it's at as far as sales volume. Do you do much of that here? Uh, we, you know, we do. Uh, and if if I had my my choice, I would have this giant area full of historical miniatures, different scales. It'd be like you know Brooke herself, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you know, but. Uh, Miniatures are extremely difficult to do profitably. If you only have a handful of people, five or six people playing a game, you know, you can only support, you know, 10 or 15 SKUs on that. And any more than that, it becomes unprofitable to carry them. You know, miniature games are also more likely to be a very small discount. So, which makes it even more difficult. So, you know, I brought in Flames of War and it did good for a while but then a couple of my key players left and then it languished and it's uh makes me just sad because that's my favorite style of gaming is you know painting up armies putting them on a table and and fighting if i could find a way to do it profitably i would it's tough and um with some of the historicals so many sources of minis right yeah it would be impossible to carry a nice, complete inventory. Yeah, if you, I mean, the nice thing about the uh, Flames of War is, you know, <laughs> you cannot accuse them of, of not covering every minute little thing that ever happened in World War II. You know, every, every vehicle there was only one of, they create miniatures for it. But that's the problem, is because there are so many uh, skews, uh, you know, and a skew is a, is an individual item that they stock. And, you know, for Flames of War, there's thousands of them. Well, I can't buy thousands of them to put on the shelf. And, you know, their biggest problem 
is that they didn't create, you know, box sets of units and then uh, could have done something very much like Games Workshop does where their core units and stuff are in retail. Uh, but then they have a very good mail order for the obscure stuff that that the players can fill the, the holes serious with. serious players want, yeah. So if you just want to do a, a standard U.S. armored platoon, well, you know, there should be a box for that with everything that you need. And then if you need anything extra to add on to that, then you could order it through their, their website. Uh, I think that's a, a pretty good model that Gaines Workshop has done and uh, makes it easier to carry the stuff. Now, you know, I know the other retailers who have tried to carry and bring Gaines Workshop in. I was lucky that we had a good solid group when I bought the store uh, because getting an initial Gaines Workshop, you know, is a significant investment. Then you have to build that group. Uh, you know, fortunately, we already had that group built when I took over the store. So, uh, now it's just been a matter of maintaining it. So what do you play now? Do you play anything? I play game store owner. <laughs> it's challenging as hell. Is that an RPG? <laughs> it should be. <laughs> it your, should be. What's your weapons proficiency? <laughs> I am, I'm dynamite with a spreadsheet. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of it is, uh, you know, my wife, there's only certain games that she's interested in playing. Uh, and so I'll focus on those. And, uh, you know, once in a while I'll get my Flames of War stuff out with my son. And we'll throw, uh, throw some dice around. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I really liked my brewery days is I could get away from the store and, and have an excuse to just sit and play games all day. Right. <laughs> that, that every time now that I play games, it's like, oh, yeah, but damn it, I... I need to get that email done and our Facebook page needs updating. And Yeah, that's funny. So you used to have events at breweries around yeah, the county. Yeah, we had one a couple months ago at Barrel Harbor. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, and it was very poorly attended, unfortunately. And uh, But definitely want to do more because, you know, it's. I think it's a good match. You know, sit around. It's good for the brewery. It's good for us. You know, we'll bring a couple of things, uh, you know, to give away as prizes and, and at the brewery bucks up with a growler or a t-shirt or something. And I think most of the game players are just happy to sit around, drink some beer and, and play games. Right. No, I've been to some of those in the past. They're, they're good fun. And, uh, as you said, nice to get away. It is. It's nice to get away. <laughs> no doubt. Well, Rob, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Hey, anytime, anytime. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on the Board Game Geek site or the group on Facebook and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. I always appreciate a review on iTunes. Thanks to Slow Season for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. And I'll close with a special thanks to Rob North. And that's it for me. 
As always, I'm planning the Wargamers Insurgency at Gen Con 2020, and I'll be back soon. My wife see my <laughs> my life seems to ebb and flow with other priorities.